This is an ABC podcast. Mark Trevorrow is back on Conversations today. Mark Trevorrow is best known as his alter ego, comedian, cabaret star, Bob Down. But Mark has another stage identity when he performs as Mark Trevorrow, singing songs that he's loved since he was a kid, created by people that he's come to know or to work with as a grown-up. And today you'll hear some of those classic songs and the stories of the people behind them. Welcome back, Mark. Richard, it is always lovely to see you. We're going to start with Anthony Newley. Anthony Newley is one of those people where if you go to someone, you could say, you know, have you heard of Anthony Newley? People go, yeah. Or they'll go, no. It's a, there's an age cutoff, isn't there? Mm, there is, there is. Uh, I think you need to be sort of 40 and over. The thing is, everyone does know Anthony Newley because they've heard his songs in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He's the guy who co-wrote The Candyman. Can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with And that beautiful song, Pure Imagination. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. That's Gene Wilder there singing Pure Imagination, a song co-written by Anthony Newley for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mark, that's how I first encountered his music through that movie. Was that where you first encountered him? Uh, I think we probably first encountered him in maybe Dr. Doolittle. Uh, and also in the 70s, he was he used to host a, a thing called the Monte Carlo Show. <laughs> and we, we must have seen it. And it was this outrageously over-the-top campy cabaret show filmed in an outdoor uh, sort of nightclub in Monaco, of course. Wow. Touchdown, Monaco. It's like an Alpine cigarette commercial. And he was just so outrageous with the... Anthony Newley had this very weird way of singing with a very exaggerated English accent and it's a huge um, influence on David Bowie. Interesting. And maybe on Bob Down as well, perhaps? Well, that's what I was going to say. I, it went off like a neutron bomb in my head watching the first time I saw Anthony Newley because he started as a... He started, He was a young film star. He, as a, he was a kid actor. He is in the David Lean's 1947 or 48 uh, Oliver Twist. He plays the Artful Dodger. Right, he, so he was a child actor. Child star. Right. Did a lot of movies. Then, then he, he became in the late fifties when he was uh, sort of in his late teens, early twenties. He became a British pop star. He had a massive pop hit record with a sort of a swing version of "Pop Goes the Weasel." <laughs> that, that doesn't sound great to me. It's like sort of skiffle era. Do you oh, know okay. what I mean? The right. sort of pre-Beatles, yep. that totally yeah, Al McCogan, that totally what? dag central British is pop. He, is he swinging "Pop Goes the Weasel"? Oh, is he? swinging it. Then he, he sort of became a songwriter with, with in partnership with a great songwriter uh, uh, who just died recently, Leslie Brickus. And together they wrote two smash hit West End and Broadway musicals in the early and mid-60s. The first one was called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And, and the second one was called The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, great title. And we all know the songs from Who Can I Turn To? Feeling Good. Right, the song that the Nina Simone one. covered. He wrote Goldfinger, the wow. theme of Goldfinger. Then he became a Vegas cabaret star, like a major headline in Vegas in the late 60s and early 70s, and that's the era that I'm recreating with my current uh, stage show. So you say he, he also made appearances in other movies like 
Doctor Doolittle. Yeah. What was he like in Doctor Doolittle? I think he was the. Um, I think he was the assistant. I think he was Doctor Doolittle, Rex Harrison's assistant, long-suffering assistant. Right. And and how did he like working with Rex Harrison? Well, this is the thing. I, I ended up working with Anthony Newley on my. Uh, I made a, a New Year's Eve special when I was living and working in London in 1996, and he was the guest because I'd seen him in cabaret his cabaret show and he knocked me out even though he was in his late 60s and as it turned out he wasn't well but he was covering that up and I just said oh, I've got to have Anthony Newley on my special and he was incredible and he told me he told me I said well what was Rex Harrison like and he said he hated animals Rex Harrison absolutely <laughs> hated animals and every time they did a take there'd be a monkey or a, or a new or a you know a gibbon and he'd say or a zebra and as soon as they yelled cut he'd say get that and I said, oh, my God. I said, what were the animals like to work with you? He said, and Newley said they were fantastic. They all bit Rex. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was an amazing – people warned me, oh, he's going to be a big diva, he's going to be trouble, but he wasn't. He was a total, utter pro. I wonder how he survived being a child star because n- normally you don't get out of that one and be alive, do That's you? That's right. Do well, you? he survived spectacularly because he grew into – uh, an astoundingly charismatic and handsome ladies' man with a fantastically original approach to singing and, as it turned out, writing. And he married Joan Collins. They had three children together. He married to Joan he Collins. He married Joan Collins. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, nonetheless... My kind of guy. N- yeah, yeah, mine too, yeah. So this amazing man who'd written all these classic songs that are with us today, mm. the songs endure even if his name has sort of slipped from a lot of people's memory. It's true. When you made that TV special with him in 1996 for ITV yeah. in the UK, uh, that was the one you were, you were hosting and starring in. That's that was right. a Bob Down TV the special. The Bob Down special. It's on YouTube. And, and you brought him on. How was he living at that point? Well, this is the thing. I went to see him in his cabaret show in um, a beautiful little cabaret room in the West End and then I was told that he was at that time was so down on his uppers that he was living with his 94-year-old mum in her Bethnal Green council house. Things had really died off for him and, and, and what we also didn't know at the time was that he was not well. He had cancer, which had returned, but he didn't want anybody to know about it because he was going to star in the West End that Christmas, which is why he agreed to do the show to promote it. He was going to star in in a West End musical adaptation of Christmas Carol that he had written with Leslie Brickus called Scrooge, in which he played the title role. So if it had got out that he wasn't well, he wouldn't have got his insurance to cover him in the lead role. And so, uh, and then we went and saw him do the musical in which he was phenomenal at the Dominion, that great barn of a theatre. That's the biggest West End theatre. Yeah, that's where We Will Rock You has been playing for 38 years. When he appeared on your show, you can still find that clip somewhere hidden in the the bowels of YouTube or Vimeo or something Mm. like that. You see him, he's not a young man. No, he's not. But he's... There's something really lovely about seeing oh, yeah. an older man light on his feet. Who can take the sunrise, sprinkle it with you? And he does this skipping dance. Is that you choreographing that? No, or no, that's me copying himself? him. No, that's me copying him. And, what, and he was one of those people, you know, when you get to work with people like that and they say, just do whatever you like. Do, I'll do whatever you want. You just tell me what you want. And so he was so fun to tease 
and to and to and to camp it up with because he's one of those he's one of those dudes that doesn't mind being very camp you know like yeah. one of those ladies men that is also very strangely camp he was something else and something happened when we were doing at the end when they, we had to all wave over the final titles while they rolled over us you, you know, waved the, over you, the titles you know, you what, like young talent waving. time yeah right. and they and you got to wave and wave stand and stand and stand and he hugged me and it was a moment that i will treasure all my life because he hugged me and he whispered in my ear you've really got it he said to me and you know there's just moments when people say something someone a particular person says something like that and you just hang on to it for your whole life it was an incredible moment So for all his charisma, his energy as a performer in that TV special you made with him in 1996, how unwell was he? Oh, he was very unwell. In fact, it was his last ever TV appearance and he got sick. Basically, he, you know, do, good old Dr. Grease paint, we call it. You know, when you're not feeling well, you get on stage and you don't feel sick while you're on stage or if you injure yourself on stage, you don't feel the pain. They call it Dr. Grease paint. I think that what got him through was uh, now I look back and I'm not 100% sure, but I know that that he had to stay well enough to do that West End lead because that was going to give him the money that he was going to be needing when he got really sick. So he, that was his last show, that was, uh, that it was his last stage show and that was his last TV appearance. He was dead within about 12 months, 12 or 18 months. Uh, so that was just astounding to find that out later on. And he was on the verge of a comeback. Yeah. Oh, no, no. This, Scrooge was, uh, it was an, a, a really good musical, a really good musical with great songs, great songs. And he was just, you know, there are people you see on stage in musicals, like uh, people like uh, Deborah Byrne is like that. There are certain people that you see in stage musicals, uh, uh, Todd McKenney, they just glow. Uh, Hugh, Hugh Jackman. You know, there, some people just have this aura of a star aura around them and that's what he was like on stage and then we went and then we had um visited him back in dressing room number one at the dominion theater and he had his dinner delivered every night from the ivy restaurant <laughs> silver service and and his lovely lady friend had put all his show posters all up framed around the room and i remember being there just thinking this is how i want to live <laughs> liveried mm. waiter delivered his dinner. <laughs> From the ivy. From the ivy. Every night. Every night. I'm going to play a track now of you performing one of his songs that I did not know was one of his songs. Yeah. It's called The Joker. This is you in your own live show as Mark Trevorrow performing yep. this song. Now people will instantly recognise this song, in Australia at least. Tell me a bit about the provenance of well, this song, please. Well, Mark. what happened when, when I was 20 and uh, when I was 20 years old living in Melbourne, I met an 18-year-old uh, Gina Riley at Wendy Harmer's 25th birthday party. That's how long ago it was. And uh, we just fell in love with each other. And Gina was so excited because she finally met a boy who knew who Liza Minnelli and Judy Garland was. She was so excited for about five minutes. And uh, But then we got over that bit and we just fell in love as friends and as collaborators, as you can imagine. And I gave her a live Shirley Bassey album that I adored called Live at the Talk of the Town, which was that fantastic a uh, big theatre nightclub in London in the West End. My mum and dad went there in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was the, it became a, a nightclub and now it's a casino. 
mm. and cabaret room. Anyway, it was this sense. It was the number one cabaret room. It was a massive old converted theatre, and this album was Shirley Bassey live at the Talk of the Town, and one of the songs on it was the Joker. And uh, and year, I gave that to Gina when we were that. And then years later, when they were putting Kath and Kim together, she rang me and she said, "What was that song? What was that song? What was that album? What was that album you gave me that had the Joker on?" I said, "Shirley Bassey live." And she and so, and that's the arrangement that Gina sings on and uses as the theme song of Kath and Kim. It's so distinctive. Like mm. most of his songs, it's hard to sort of say what they have in common except that they all have drama in them. Yeah, I suppose they do. that's it. They all have a sense of drama going from yes. even the sweet suspense of pure imagination, which just yep. has that glockenspiel or something yep. Yep. At, the, at the start of it and then the, the highest shimmering strings. I think, because he, I think because he and Brickers were writing for the stage, they had to put and it made them very intense, intensely dramatic lyrically and musically. And so whether there are ballads or, you know, if you think of who can I turn to, just if honestly, if you don't know Newley's work, you really need to just type Anthony Newley, N-E-W-L-E-Y, into YouTube. He made very few TV appearances, but there's a couple of appearances that he did on the Ed Sullivan show and you really see uh, he does um, Who Can I Turn To on the Ed Sullivan show in his character he did it was this these characters that he did in his shows were sort of like you know the everyman the sort of the clown the the little man it wasn't he a working class boy Very from much. hackney from he hackney. was yes. yeah he was this is mark trevorrow performing the joker by anthony newley There's always a joker in the pack, always a lonely clown. The poor laughing fool falls on his back, everyone laughs when he's down. There's always a funny man in the game, but he's only funny by mistake. Everyone laughs at him just the same, they don't see his lonely heartbreak. They don't care as long as there is a just a just a fool As foolish as he can be There's always a joker, that's the rule Make deals a hand and I see The joker is me
Mark Trevorrow performing The Joker by Anthony Newley. The next encounter we're going to talk about now that you've had with a kind of a great showbiz legend is with the great Silla Black, oh. Mark Trevorrow. How did you meet Silla Black for the first time? Well, firstly, I, we, I was obsessed with Silla Black and her records. I knew all about her connection with the Beatles because she'd been the hat check girl at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. Get out. And she was what? one of the only local girl singers in Liverpool and used to jump up at every opportunity to sing. And my cabaret group, The Globos, which I created with um, my beautiful friend, the late Wendy Dewal, we used to lip sync old records. And our favourite one for Wendy to lip sync was always Anything by Scylla Black. What were her big hits in the 60s? Well, she had her first, her, her first hit was written for her by the Beatles. And then her, her number one, her first number one hit was Anyone Who Had a Heart by Bert Bacharach. Didn't she also do You're My World? And, yes, she did. And if I'm to be perfectly honest, my first encounter with that with that song was seeing Daryl Braithwaite perform it, I think. And he did a really good yeah, cover of it that was also number one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And she also sang Alfie, which I sing as myself, which I absolutely love. She started as a pop star, but then she ended up as the sort of the number one TV presenter all through the late 60s, right up to the late 80s, early 90s. So there I was finally getting to meet her and work on her tea time variety shows. And she was so fantastic because she really loved my kind of comedy, my kind of madcap, old school, campy comedy that I do as Bob Down. And um, she told me that she'd worked with Tommy Cooper. She did a six-week run or eight-week run at the Palladium with Tommy Cooper. He was closing the bill. She was second last on the bill. But in, in between booking this show and the show happening, she had the number one single. So she moved into the top spot. And Tommy Cooper was second, oh, no. second last. Oh, no. But she used to watch him. She said she used to watch him every show from the wings waiting to go on and she learnt everything she needed to know about comedy from watching Tommy Cooper every night. And on opening night he massively overran and his wife was in the wings next to Scylla saying, I'll kill him, you poor girl. I'll kill him when he gets off. And so he finished to a thunderous standing ovation and he walked into the wings and his big, great big wife was bashing him with her handbag. <laughs> How dare you, this poor girl? And so Scylla walked onto her opening number with that happening behind her. Anyway, fantastic. <laughs> Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So there you are, you're in London, Mark, performing as Bob Down, going on Silver Black's TV show, the most beloved person in British broadcasting at that time. Did you tell her of your long fascination with her? So 
I told her that we used to lip sync her records and, and I said, we used to do surround yourself with sorrow. And she went, oh, number seven, 1969. She knew all her chart positions. She knew all of her chart positions. Years later, she became really good pals with Lily Savage, Paul O'Grady. And um, Lily Savage uh, is a, a kind of a legendary scouse, foul-mouthed drag queen that ended up has ended up becoming a huge TV personality in the UK. Yeah, and uh, he 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 um, did her eulogy at Liverpool at Liverpool um, Cathedral when she died, and he turned sixty in in two thousand fifteen. And me and my hub Steph went to the went to London for Sab's sixtieth birthday party. And Scylla was there, which was remarkable because at this point she really was not going out much. She became she had a very sad last few years once she stopped working, and um, she'd lost her husband Bobby, who had um, been her manager and boy, you know they'd been together since they were teenagers, and uh, she was very and so people knew to leave her alone. So she was at this party, fairly with her one of her sons who was managing her at, at that time. And it turned out this was six weeks before she died. And uh, she was very blue and, and sort of glum. But Steph didn't know. Steph didn't know that she was massively famous. Everybody was leaving her alone except Steph who started chatting her up. And oh, he, he just saw this this yeah, sad-looking yeah, woman in the corner and yeah, thought, I'll cheer her up. Yeah. He knew, without knowing who she was at well, all. Well, I, I told her, but, you know, he, he sort of didn't. He's young enough right. not to really know who, if you're Australian you don't, and you're under, no. you know. So, so it's he, like saying, you know, there's George Formby over there yeah. or something. It doesn't mean anything to yeah. him, right? And I didn't even say going to him. He's just so sweet and lovely and, and you know, he's great. Like he, he can look after himself. But this is what we all want, a partner who can look after yes. themselves at parties. That's right. And so he got her chatting and in the end he, he was dancing with her and um, she said to him, um, I've, got three, I've got three sons and two grandsons and they're all a massive disappointment to me. And he went, oh, why? She said, because none of them are gay, she said. <laughs> <laughs> because she was, so, she was so close to Brian Epstein. He, he was her manager. Yeah. As she was close to Tommy Nutter. She was close to all of these amazing gay showbiz people. There is a special love that the British have for long-time stars like yeah. Silla Black. That's not that – I don't think they, they – I don't think any other nation reveres its its long running stars like that. Do you, what, There's what, very what? few in Australia, aren't there? Like Bert is definitely one. Was one. Although yeah. you know you have a long period. Bert had a long period of out of the limelight mm. before he sort of you know came back. I always say you just have to live long enough and you're going to be a legend. Yeah, we've got to hang in there, Richard. <laughs> um, but yes, the Brits have this. Uh, and I have a theory because it's such a small country with a massive population. It's a tiny island country nation with, uh, uh, you know, nations with uh, 60 million people and the media has always been national. So all the papers are national. All the BBC channels, radio stations and channels are national. So you get this blanket effect of, of and, and the weather's so crap, everybody is at home watching television. Yeah, I was going to say, that's right. I think it's these stars that often people feel very grateful to them because they rescue them from the depressing yeah. uh, depressing wet bank holiday weekend in England. And the same and the same with uh, theatre. It's a, you know, it is a massive theatre country. Yeah. People go to shows and concerts again to feel warm. It's not like us in Australia we just go out. Yeah. You can go outside. Yeah, that's but, right. You know, if it's constant it's been raining for a month. 
outside and it's cold and damp and, and horrible and yeah. there's damp in the flat. You turn on the telly and there's Morecambe and Wise or there's Silver Black or someone like that. Yeah. They cheer you up. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, they just have this wonderful loyalty to to the stars that they love. It's quite it's quite remarkable. And I, li- I lived and worked there long enough for that to happen a little tiny bit with me. I st- I'm, you know, on my Facebook pages and, and I still have so many people in Britain, when are you coming back to the UK? And now they're angry. Now they're angry with me because I've I've left it more than five years. <laughs> they're turning on me now. <laughs> so the song we're going to play of you, of hers, or that she made famous, that you sing as part of your live act, is Alfie. That's from the Michael Caine movie, is it? It certainly yeah. is. And she and she told me that uh, Bat- Bacharach made it quite clear that he didn't want her to do the vocal. And and they insisted on it because it was a British film. He wanted the Dionne Warwick version of it. And so he she he made her, he came to London to direct the session and she had to sing it with a full orchestra because you did in those days. And he made her do it 39 times. And in the end he used take three. She said it was one of the most traumatic work experiences she'd ever had and i mean my god that her record of that is stunning and i love seeing and we've named our schnauzer after this song what's it all about is it just for the moment we live what's it all about when you sort it out Mark Trevorrow singing Alfie, a theme song from the movie of the same name that appeared in the 1960s, made Michael Caine a star and was originally sung in the movie by Scylla Black from a Burt Bacharach song. Finally, Mark, the last of our singer-songwriters who may or may not have been forgotten is Paul Williams. 
Tell me a bit about him. The diminutive Paul Williams, mm. an amazing songwriter uh, uh, and composer, singer, uh, from in late 60s, early 70s, wrote all of uh, most, pretty well most of the early Carpenters hits. We've only just begun Rainy Days and Mondays. He wrote and starred in a, f- a musical film called Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah, that was a cult classic. Like, like you'd often, cinemas would often show that as a cult feature alongside the Rocky Horror they Show did. in the 70s. That's how I saw it. The Phantom of the Paradise. I remember seeing that great when I was a songs. kid. Yeah, great, great songs. Yeah, great songs. And he was, he's a really tiny guy. Tiny little guy. Yeah. And, and uh, in fact, a lot of people think he's, he's one of these people, you know how it happened to Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood. People get an idea that someone's dead and they're not. I hope that never happens to us, Richard. <laughs> Because That's what, poor, what do you think I go on the radio most days, Mark? Poor, poor little Paul Williams. They think he's, in fact, there's a wonderful documentary about him called Still Alive, which is all about everybody <laughs> thinking that he's dead. And he's still working and performing and, and, and wrote this unbelievably beautiful ballad. Well, I, I have to say, in regards to that, this very week I was watching that amazing movie called Baby Driver, which is... It's a fantastic action film, an amazing film. And suddenly there's Paul Williams in it mm. as an arms dealer, as a tiny yeah. sort of criminal arms dealer. Yeah. And I did say to my wife, Paul Williams, I thought he was dead. <laughs> Hello. Hello. This is a Paul Williams song performed by him that was later covered by the Carpenters, Rainy Days and Mondays. song you often sing at the end of your set when you're performing as Mark Trevorrow and we're putting all that stuff aside the the glam and show business qualities of Bob Down to one, to one side and you're performing as Mark Trevorrow this is a song that everyone knows straight away, well most people know straight away, by Paul Williams called Rainbow Connection that featured in the very first Muppets movie, sung by Kermit the Frog In a swamp. In in a swamp. It's the most beautiful song. First time a puppet's ever played a a banjo. Indeed, with expert finger work there too, (laughs) from felt fingertips and the like. I also remember how he was the first puppet to ride a bicycle. I do. That's right. He's singing Moving Right Along with Fozzie Bear at the start of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) We keep these details on our head for no apparent reason. I heard this version of, of Rainbow Connection, that's the song, and I heard it by Peter Kinchotti, who's a New York cabaret singer and piano player, and he did it really gentle and soft, and I thought, oh, oh, that's nice. And this was my late dad's favourite song that I ever sung. I sang I sang this at my dad's funeral. Oh, so, so I, yeah, do you have to talk yourself into that yeah. each night when you do that without, yes, trying to, without I, wanting I, to cry? It can actually catch my throat. Yeah. It actually is very hard to get through it because it's such a beautiful song anyway. And then to sing it soft and gentle, uh, it, it is. It's actually quite hard to get through it. I think, and it's, and what... it's the internal mechanics of it because there, there is like the way Newley knew how to do it. Paul, you know, if you think about those Carpenters songs, it's technical. It's, it's like there are obviously chord progressions and keys that are triggers of for emotion, yeah. and and great songwriters know whether they know 
technically exactly or whether they just have an instinct for it. They know how to do it. It's like Bert Bacharach. His arrangements totally. are as complex as jazz, but totally. you'd never know it because they're... They sound so easy to sing. Mm. They, you know, you can have like that scene, at, you know, in the Deer Hunter with someone singing, um, "You're just too good to be true," and yet the the music behind it's really sophisticated. Yeah, and it's the same with Paul Williams' songs as well. Yeah, my theory about the, when you sing this, it has this lovely effect on the audience, and mm. I think it's one of those songs that uh, they sigh. You get the audience sighs when they hear the first line. They love it so much. Uh, I, I do in the in the Bob show at the moment with Sean and Jensen. I, I sing "You Don't Bring Me Flowers." We do it stupidly, but the same thing. They hear the first line and they sigh. There is just some that that's obviously the the great trick with writing great ballads. I think there are some old you know songs from kids movies that have that effect on people. It makes them sort of giddy mm. when they hear it like let's go fly a kite from mary oh. poppins is like that too people chim, sway chim, chim chim yes. all yes. the songs from mary poppins yes. are like that for and, me and this one's like it you can see people smile and their heads bob from side to side mm. there's, there's real art in that my theory about rainbow connection one of the reasons why is is the melody is like an arpeggio that's true that what do you hear in the complexity of that song um, I think it, it's a, there's there's not only the verses are beautiful, but it has the most amazing bridge, the most amazing middle eight. You know, the bit where a song uh, ver, ver, there's a variation. The bit where it goes all of us under its spell, we know that it's probably oh, magic, and that, then there's a key change. And there. yeah, we know that it's probably magic, and that's the yeah. key change. Uh, it's just so you, you, it's it's um, like great comedy writing, like you know the way the girls write Kath and Kim. I remember when I was doing Kath and Kim. Gina said, don't ad-lib around, just perform the script exactly as written. And it's the same with a, a song like Rainbow Connection. You just have to sing it correctly, exactly as written, and it has such power that you can almost phone it in. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? What's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, only illusions. Rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. The dreamers and me Stargazing And what do we think We might see Someday we'll find it The rainbow connection The lovers The dreamers and me All of us under its spell We know that it's probably magic 
It's been such a pleasure having you back on Conversations. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Rich. It's lovely to talk about songs. It's nice Isn't to talk it? about music. Mark, thank you so much once again. Delightful. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.